Some of you single today, you're going to leave engaged. I just prophesy. So, we got a spirit. <laughs> I love it. Wow, wow, wow. Well, I'm going to try to preach after that. So, that's funny. That's funny. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Yeah, we're, we're going to have another baptism service here uh, in, in uh, the next few months. We'll be advertising that. Baptisms here at Pursuit are always insane. It's just so cool to see people follow the Lord through the waters of baptism. It really is a transformational moment in life. It's a crossing over. It's a public declaration of an inward confession. And so I love baptisms. I love the public confession of faith. And we, we try to do that. You know, somebody... Somebody told me in the pandemic, they said, I, 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 got, I baptized myself at home in the bathtub. I said, you ain't nothing but a wet devil. You know, you get, we'll come get baptized at church. We'll do it again. And so, uh, anyways, Mark 11, Mark 11, starting, starting in verse 15. Now, uh, the, the Bible tells this story uh, of Jesus uh, it actually tells the story twice, and theologians are split. Some people believe the Bible tells the story twice because it happens two different times, and some people believe that it's just the same telling of the story from two different perspectives. But in Mark 11, it records one of these really interesting moments in the life of Jesus where he acts out of character, not out of his character, but out of the way that we think about his character. And that's what's uh, so incredible about reading scripture is that so often you run into things and you, and, and you go, I cannot believe Jesus said that, or I cannot believe Jesus operated that way, or I can't believe he made that statement, but then didn't explain it to people who are around him. And Jesus is always operating in a way that confounds our humanity. It confounds our way to intellectually process diagnose and understand who he is. And that's why it's so important that we serve a Jesus who isn't made in our image, but instead we understand we've been made in his image. And Mark 11 is one of those moments where Jesus walks into the temple and does something that is outrageous. Now, just let me encourage you. Mark 11 is not a proof text for you to act foolish on a Sunday morning. Mark 11 is a story about Jesus who was perfect in all of his ways, tempted but without sin, our great high priest, who was operating in a way that fulfilled not only prophecy in the Old Testament, but was reestablishing and recentering himself as the great high priest, the mediator between God and men. And sometimes people kind of like in a self-righteous sense try to, I think, build mountains out of molehills in, in, in scripture. They'll look at Mark 11 where Jesus overturns the tables of the merchants and then they'll get really weird theology. Like this is why a church can't have a cafe in the foyer because Jesus overturns the money changers tables in the temple. And, and that just tells me you spent too much time on the internet, not enough time in scripture. Because of course that's not the principle being communicated in Mark 11. I promise you the Holy Ghost is not upset at the cafe today. He's not upset at the church merch. He's not upset at signing your kid up for youth camp. God is not upset about those things. In Mark 11, the principle that's being established is that money changers and merchants had created barriers for people to interact with God. And everywhere there's a barrier that interrupts somebody's interaction with God, that is a place that Christ has come to dismantle and destroy. The apostle John says it this way, for this reason, the son of God was made manifest to dismantle works of darkness darkness, essentially to take apart roadblocks and barriers that have kept people in bondage and in darkness. Now the merchants and the money changers operated as arbitrators. They saw themselves as the middlemen.
went. You couldn't go into the inner court. You couldn't really have commune with God. You had to change your money. You had to buy either a goat or a sheep in the outer court. They charged exorbitant fees. They were ripping off God's people. And Jesus shows up and says, this is not going to be the way that we treat people. We want to create avenues of invitation, not barriers or blockades. And so that's why even in a church context, we tell people things like this. You can come any way that you want. You can show up in any sort of season of life. You don't got to clean yourself up to come to church. You don't have to pass a theology test to come to church. You don't have to pass a political test to come to church. You can come any way you want. Here's our only request. Once you get here, submit yourself to the transformative work of God's spirit. We're creating an avenue that is as wide as possible. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved from every type of tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation, every type of background, every rung on the socioeconomic ladder, both genders, every political party. We're welcoming people to sit at the Lord's table. But here's what we're asking. Don't sit at the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. That's Paul's instruction to the church in Corinth. He says, when you sit at the Lord's table and take communion in an unworthy manner, what you have made is church about you instead of about him. And so we wanna receive the Lord in a worthy manner by keeping him as the center of focus in the church. Now watch what scripture says in Mark 11. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is, not, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? He's quoting the prophets, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him for they feared him because that's what religion does. It kills what it fears because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Let me start by making a statement and then let me unpack it. Some of you are sitting at tables. Christ is trying to flip. When the table you sit at becomes a barrier to, instead of an invitation towards, get ready for disruption. Tables in our culture don't look like merchants or money changers, but they do look like mindsets or thought patterns that keep people from experiencing the fullness that Christ offers. And today I want to talk about five in particular, five mindsets that I believe in this hour, Jesus is helping us change because these mindsets oftentimes not only keep others, but keep ourselves artificially away or at a distance from what Christ provides. In the book of Romans, Paul is writing the church in Rome and he says this, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word transform transliterates to a Greek term meaning this, experience metamorphosis. He's saying this, experience metamorphosis in your mind through the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to present yourself as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Be renewed or be transformed. Experience metamorphosis in your mind. And so as believers, we understand that just because we invite Jesus into our heart does not mean that we have fully engaged in the metamorphosis of our mind. That's where sanctification comes in. That's where discipleship comes in. Every day you've got an opportunity to submit your mind to his mind, your ways to his ways, your thoughts to his thoughts, your patterns to his patterns. That's the process we're in for the rest of our lives. And so this morning, I want to talk about five mindsets that I believe need to experience metamorphosis in order for you to create avenues instead of barriers to this type of God that we serve. Number one is this. These are five mindsets. 
ways that we think about church, ways that we think about community. Number one is this, I'm only here to showcase my gifts. Friend, your gift isn't about you, it's about others. And when it becomes about you, God will sit you down for a season until you understand its true intent. The church isn't an equal opportunity talent show that owes its members a slot on the stage. It is a gathering of God's people with the express purpose of glorifying him. Friend, the church is under no obligation to give equal time to unequal gifts, meaning this, we aren't on rotation, we're on assignment. And when you're on assignment, you understand that not everyone holds the steering wheel at the same time, and that's okay because everyone has a unique part to play. The church is not show and tell, it's gather and glorify. Glorify. And when we've lost sight of that, we make our relationship with God more about the platform than we do the altar. I'm only here to showcase my gifts. As my kids have gotten older and gone into kindergarten and now into first grade, one of the things that I find myself doing as a parent is showing up at these like fall and winter and spring concerts. And there is nothing worse in the world than a concert filled with first graders who learned to play the tuba 30 seconds ago trying to play the national anthem. Nothing worse. <clears throat> right, but sometimes we think about church in that context. Like the church owes me a place to display my gift. And can I tell you that your gift isn't about you. In fact, it has very little to do with you. That's why Paul calls it a gift of grace, meaning you didn't earn it. You certainly didn't deserve it. It was given to you for free. Yes, you have a mandate to develop it, but it wasn't based on your goodness. It was based on his. And when we begin to think about ourselves as a gift to the body, instead of thinking about the church as a gift to us, all of a sudden the church exists to build my personal platform. It exists to build my personal influence. It exists to build my personal social media page, but it doesn't exist to glorify him. The church doesn't just exist to showcase your gifts. Our gifts exist to showcase his glory. Watch what David says as he is thinking about his role. He's been a shepherd. He's been a servant. He's been a musician, he's been a king, he's had a throne that's expanded, he's also had a throne that's been threatened by his son, Absalom. David has followed the Lord through a whole lot of different seasons of life. And one of the things that I'm most struck by is when he says things like this, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Essentially this, whether I clean the foyer, whether I serve in kids ministry, whether I help run sound lights, media, or whether I publicly proclaim the gospel on stage, I'm just here to have a seat in a house that honors his presence because that's enough. And scripture says this, if you seek reward from men, you'll have it, but you'll miss out on reward from God. And what I found is that sometimes what motivates our over-functioning in church environments is that our affirmation and identity has not been settled by the father so that we need it from others. Nobody thanked me and nobody noticed me and nobody scheduled me and nobody wants me and nobody desires me and nobody knows how valuable I am. Yeah, except God. And until that's enough, it will never be enough, the compliments of people around you. See, Jesus hears the voice of the Father while he's baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. The clouds part, a voice speaks from heaven, the Holy Spirit as a dove lands on his shoulders and hears the words of the Father. This is my 
son in who I am well pleased. There has never been a recorded miracle that Jesus has done at this point. He has not healed the sick. He has not raised the dead. He has not fed the 5,000. He has not turned water into wine. He has not walked on water. He hasn't even cast out a demon. In fact, he hasn't even preached a sermon. And at the age of 30, the father declares, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. I mean, the pleasure of the father was not connected to the production of the son. And when you have the affirmation and the pleasure of a father, not connected to your productivity, but just connected to your identity, even when I'm overlooked by people around me, my seat is still settled in heaven. And so when we communicate this, it's to help us understand, I'm not just here to showcase my gifts. That church is a great opportunity for you to exercise your spiritual gifts, certainly. But there will be seasons of public giftedness. There will be seasons of private giftedness. There will be seasons of public accolades. There will be seasons of no accolades at all. And until you become a settled person in Christ, it will never be enough, the affirmation of people around you. Church is not just here to be a showcase for your gifts or a weird show and tell where everybody gets on rotation because that's the only way that we can keep people around. No, this is a church that exists to glorify Jesus. And when your life redevelops around that purpose, whether you're sweeping in the foyer, serving in kids ministry or standing on the stage, you're just happy to play a part. Okay. Okay. Hang with me. It's too hot. I know. Hang with me. Number two. I'm only here to receive from others. Maybe the number one reason we have trouble receiving as believers is because so often we haven't done anything with what we last got. When we make church about what we receive, we've reduced God to a transaction managed by others. And see, God refuses to be reduced to a transaction. He refuses to be reduced to a religious ceremony. He refuses to be reduced to a man-made formula. The church is not a dispenser of therapeutic value. It is a gathering of priests and kings to honor a living God. You know, it's interesting to me that Jesus uses this Old Testament term, din of robbers to describe what the merchants and money changers have made the house of God. See, I think a dinner robbers looks like a group of people who only exist to consume, but never exist to produce. Robbers take, but mature believers give. And how many of you have noticed, even in your family system, the more that you mature, the more that your joy comes, not from what you get, but from watching your kids or your kids' kids receive. You know what dad doesn't need under the Christmas tree this year? Another pair of socks. I'm going to be okay. I don't need another tie. I don't need another sport coat. I'm going to be all right. My joy doesn't come from what I unwrap. My joy comes from watching my kids unwrap things. As they receive, it brings joy to the Father. And I think sometimes for us, we made church so much about what I receive. See, we all have these conversations when we leave church on Sunday. So how was church today? How was church today? It seems like a simple question, but I think it reflects on some more complex nuances, meaning how do we adjudicate the value of a service we sit through? Is it based on what I got or what I contributed to watch other people receive? See, what if success on Sunday wasn't how much did I receive, but how much did I participate in giving away? 
What would that do to the express purpose and vision of your life? Oh, I'm connected to something bigger than just what I felt on a Sunday morning. No, I'm here as a giver, not just as a receiver. And I think one of the things that spiritual maturity develops in us is the ability to receive while we, while we watch others receive. I'm able to receive from the Lord as, I, as my joy is made full in watching other people come into their fullness. Now watch number three here. This is, this is important. I'm only here as long as the senior pastor is personally available to me. Watch. My primary job is to hear from God, get vision for the church, and communicate the gospel. If I'm constantly available to you, it means I'm not doing what I've been hired to do. Hear me, this is the difference between an apostolic-led house and a pastoral-led house. My title is pastor, but my function is as a chief visionary who is working to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and the advancement of the kingdom. I am convinced that some of the best pastoral care happens on the battlefield because that's what you were created for. See, this isn't a rest home for the spiritually dead, but instead a battleship for the spiritually alive. And getting injured is part of the journey. And the world doesn't stop at your injury because the task at hand is greater than any one individual loss. You will experience the fellowship of his suffering, but what a great introduction into the power of his resurrection. Everybody here, or most everybody here, shares something in common. We've all come from another place, another wineskin with a different DNA. And I like to think about the kingdom of God as an ecosystem. I don't need every church in the Northwest to look like pursuit. You know why? Because we're reaching people others can't and others are reaching people we won't ever. And so we all need to work together. That's why I believe in pastors. I believe in churches. I believe in spirit-filled communities that all look a little different and sound a little different and function a little different because we're all reaching corners of the earth that are outside the purview of the people that we're standing next to. But with that being said, sometimes people transition into this environment and then expect it to operate exactly like the environment that they came from. And I can only be true to what God has asked me to be in this hour, which is as a chief visionary equipping saints, not to watch the work of the ministry, but to do the work of the ministry. Meaning that God has created me as a builder. He's created me as an advancer, somebody who likes to take land and take property and take cities. He has hardwired into me the need to fight for something that is more significant than just checking in every time you stub your toe or have a bad coffee date in the morning. But some of us have been so babied in pastoral heavy environments that as soon as I don't get noticed when I have a bad day, I'm ready to trade in all my chips and go back to comfort. And you can have comfort or you can have revival, but you can't have both. And so we want to be in an environment that encourages and challenges people to go after the things of God. Hear me, I am not trying to minimize your pain. I'm not trying to minimize your story or your narrative. We all have them. They are important. They move the hand of God. One of the things that we try to develop here is pastoral care teams. When people are sick, we visit them. We send flowers. We check in. We dedicate babies. We do funerals. We do weddings. We do baptisms. We're really trying to ingratiate ourselves to the community to do the work of the gospel. But the best 
best way that I serve you is not by serving your need, but instead introducing you to his presence. Because in his presence, there is fullness for life. And that fullness gives you mission and purpose. And when you have mission and when you have purpose, you will put up with pain because the end result is worth it. The apostles in the New Testament, after the church is founded, the Bible says the widows bring a complaint to the apostles. And they say, we are getting overlooked in the distribution of bread. And watch what the apostles say. That's important. And we're going to appoint somebody to make sure that that gets managed. But we're not going to leave preaching the gospel and advancing the kingdom to do those tasks. It's not because they're not important. It's because we've really come alive to what God has asked us to do in this hour. And let me just apologize in advance. I'm not going to be the pastor that's going to be able to show up at every single one of your children's softball games. I'm not going to be the pastor who's going to ever show up at your child's concert ever. I'm not going to be the pastor who's going to remember every single date from every single birthday and every single anniversary. But I can promise you this. If you follow me, we're going to see the goodness of God in the land of the living and a move of his spirit in the Northwest. (laughs) Number four, I'm only here as long as the church never talks about my sin. I was okay as long as Russell was going after the progressives. I was okay as long as Russell was talking about the gays. I was okay as long as Russell was talking about everybody else's sin. As long as he don't come from my idols, my temptations, or my sins. Here's my desire. I want everyone to be equally offended because that lets me know I'm doing my job well. If you want a church that sounds like you, looks like you, always agrees with you, never challenges you, never confronts you, then you're not interested in reflecting God. Instead, you want God to be a reflection of you. We ought to resist the temptation to build God in our image when we've been invited to be transformed into his. This is why one of the Ten Commandments is don't build a God in your image (laughs) because that's a really poor replacement for the God of Scripture. You know what I found true about the Holy Spirit? He disturbs the comforted and he comforts the disturbed. And sometimes he'll do both at the same time inside of you and it doesn't feel very good. And so for us, as we think about what it looks like to be a part of a developmental community that's growing and changing and and being sanctified and being transformed, we are experiencing metamorphosis. We understand that the most dangerous sin that we face is not the sin in our neighbor's backyard, it's the sin in our own backyard. And that's why we're all really comfortable, myself included, when somebody is talking about somebody else's sin. I'm like, man, I'm sure glad so-and-so was here today because they needed this. (laughs) And all of a sudden, the pastor shifts and he starts talking about something you're dealing with. And you're like, you know, I have been looking for a new church, actually. You know, I just don't, you know, that pursuit is too loud. So here's the thing. It's a wrong mindset. It's a wrong barrier. Until your mind's renewed, you can't see the fullness of God in your life. It's not just enough to have Christ living inside of you through his indwelt spirit. That's where it starts. But where it starts is not where it ends. Where it starts is an invitation. Where it goes is total life transformation. And what I've found is that a lot of Christians end up living below the level of their inheritance because their heart got saved, but their mind stayed carnal. They're like, I'm going to heaven. Yeah, you're going to heaven. But on this side of life, all you experience is hell. 
because your mind has an experience metamorphosis. And when our mindsets, how we think about things. So we gotta challenge ourselves to think about things differently. Sometimes people walk into church and they go, well, it should just run this way. And I go, why? Well, because the last church I was at ran this way. And I go, well, why did they? Well, because the last church they were. And pretty soon nobody knows why we do the things that we do anymore. It's just old tradition. We're just doing them because it self-perpetuates the next generation of doing it. And I said, what if, what if we just take a, a break and just breathe and use our brains for a moment and break agreement with the worship of nostalgia and say, what, why does the church actually exist? Maybe it exists not to serve our need, but to serve his. Maybe the chief role of the church is to get kings and priests to minister to the Lord. And out of that place of ministering to the Lord, his presence shows up, it changes our lives and it transforms the community. Maybe that's the novel idea that we've missed out on for so long. Well, pastor, we just, you know, I just, I just want to run a soup kitchen. Yeah, me too. I think that's important. But until we get his presence, it doesn't matter what else you get. Now watch number five. I'm only here as long as the church never rocks the boat. Friend, we can't afford not to rock the boat because the boat is heading off a thousand foot waterfall with rocks below and I refuse to rearrange deck chairs while the Titanic is sinking. Somebody, somewhere, ought to rock the boat. I got criticized this week by an individual saying, why does Russell always got to talk about the culture? He's always interested in what's happening in the world around him. He's always got to mention something that's on the news or something that's happening in the world or something that's happening in the neighborhood. Friend, if we lose the culture, it doesn't matter how cool our church services are. This is the defining battle of our time. And for too long, people believe the lie that as long as the church remains pure, the culture will take care of itself. The government spent the last 16 months trying to close churches by force. Our public schools function as centers of indoctrination. Our financial systems are on the brink of collapse. People can't decide what gender they are. Evil is called good. Good is called evil. If the righteous don't take a stand in the city, we will soon find ourselves without a place to call home. We owe the culture an encounter with God. Well, I just wanted revival in the church. Well, revival in the church ain't revival in the church until it's reformation in the culture. And we want revival to tarry. It's got to make an impact in our neighborhoods, in our social institutions, and in the civic square of public engagement. No, you were created for a public faith. You don't have a private faith. You have a public faith or you have no faith at all. I'm just convinced that we owe the world more than we've given them. And we owe them a faith that has so transformed us that it transforms every sphere of influence that we step our foot inside of. And for you and I, we operate with this God-given mandate, the high call of God, which is in Christ Jesus. No, I owe the world an encounter with him. And, and it's not just about protecting the ideological purity of what's happening here. 
People have bought into this lie, this this separation of church and state, this secular neutrality. Well, the church should just keep its values because how dare the church tell the world how to live? And how dare the church want a law to be passed that reflects biblical justice? And how dare the church try to impose its truth? Friends, you have bought into secular humanism and you don't even know it. Secular humanism is a competing religion in the West. And if we want to be people who live for God and leave a free society for our children to also live for God, our faith better make an impact in the culture around us. I'm stirred up this morning. I'm hot and bothered. I'll tell you that much. He taught them. He said, is it not written? My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. You made it a dinner robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, began looking for a way to kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Watch, Jesus was willing to disrupt the whole house because merchants and money changers were making it harder instead of easier for people to get to God. Nothing in your life should keep you from God, but also nothing in your life should be off limits once you get to God. Friend, Christianity isn't what we build on top of our already convoluted identities. Being followers of Jesus is where our identity is truly formed. It's not look at who I am, look at the way that I was born, look at my ethnicity, my heritage, my proclivities, my politics, my gender, my socioeconomic status, and now let me add Christ like the cherry on a disgusting dessert. Well, I was born this way. I appreciate that. But unless you are born again, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. Our identity is settled and formed and rooted and born again in the image of Christ Jesus. But we live in a world that is so love drunk on spiritual syncretism. We think we can take him and add it to the mountain of life that I have built and then claim Christ as some sort of relational identity. No, Paul says in him, we live, we move, And we have our very existence, which means identity is not what I add Christ to. It's what I come into as a result of being born again into his kingdom. Our culture says skin color should be a primary identity. Our culture says political tribalism should be a primary identity. Our culture says gender should be a primary identity. Our culture says ethnicity, heritage, country of origin should be a primary identity. But watch what scripture says in Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. That's the good news of the gospel. I'm now in Christ. It doesn't mean that my gender isn't still significant. It doesn't mean that my ethnicity doesn't matter to God. It doesn't mean that I lose my cultural heritage because I'm a follower of Jesus. It means those things come second to my primary identity, which is in him. I'm an heir of Abraham. I'm a son of the promise according to what Christ has done. That's who I am. And everything else comes second. 
Somebody was asking me this week. They're trying to determine maybe if the church was woke enough for them to attend. They asked me this question, what's the racial makeup of the church? I said, well, good news. I've actually done an exhaustive study of every single one of our members. I took all their DNA and I submitted it to 23andMe. I've created a genetic profile of every single one of our attenders. And I can give you the full racial breakdown of every person who puts their butt in a seat. I told them to go to 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's not a white church. It's not a black church. It's not a Latino church. It's not an Asian church. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, kings under God. This is who we are. Jesus was flipping tables in the outer courts. It was where people came to buy animals in order to be sacrificed on the altar of burnt offerings. Something had to die in order for men to progress from the outer court to the inner court. (laughs) That's why David says, I will bring a sacrifice of praise. It's what opens the gates into the inner court where his presence rests. See, some of you have settled for outer court religion when you've been invited into inner court relationship. You've settled for all the performance of religious trappings. You've settled for the sacrifice and the bringing of gifts and alms and and, 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 and things unto God in order to feel spiritual. But friend, that was an avenue meant to take you into the inner courts, meant to introduce you to the Holy of Holies, the place where his presence rests. This is why it's so significant what Paul says of Jesus, that through the veil of his torn flesh, we have entered into the holy place. The partition that separated men, the barriers that kept out Gentiles, the things that put people into classes that prevented them from receiving from God have been torn down and we are together one new man in Christ Jesus. Don't settle for the outer court when you've been invited to the inner court. Now the outer court's important because it's part of your journey, but it's not where you stop. It's part of your journey. Sacrifice is part of this journey. Repentance is part of this journey. Come on, bringing gifts and alms to the Lord. Friend, that's part of the journey, but it's not where it stops. It always meant to serve as an avenue to get to the inner part of God's heart, the place where his presence rests. See, in this environment, I'm admonishing you, don't settle for the outer when you've been invited to the inner. This is who we are. We're people who are going after his presence. We're not satisfied by religious pomp and circumstance. We're not satisfied by just going through all the religious exercises. No, it's part of the journey, but it's an avenue that leads you straight to his heart. And can I tell you in closing, there are things that need to die in the outer court in order for you to move to the inner court. 
You can't take the sacrifice with you. No, you can't take the live animals with you. They were offered on the brazen altar. The brazen altar was in the outer court. That's where the sacrifice was made. See, some people want inner court living with no sacrifice in their life. I want all the benefits of his presence, but I'm not willing to let go of my baggage. I want the benefits of his transformation, but I'm not willing to let go of my old ways and my old relationships and my old mindsets. No, that is part of what you laid down in the pursuit of what is holy. You were built for encounter. You were designed for his presence. You were made for inner court living. And that's the path that we're on. And that's why Christ has come, that you may experience metamorphosis in mind, body, heart, and soul, that there would be no barriers, no tables, no blockades, no dead ends that would keep you from experiencing his fullness. Come on, let's stand as we close this morning.